Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to another episode of The Ezra Klein Show. I am excited today because we've got Michael Needham, who is head of Heritage Action, one of the most important conservative activist groups, interest groups. It's uh, it's associated with the Heritage Foundation think tank, but it is really played a crucial, important role in pushing the more anti-establishment, Tea Party-inflected conservatism that has taken over certainly the congressional wing of the Republican Party in recent years. It is obviously a fascinating time for the Republican Party, and I think Mike has had a really unusual, interesting vantage point on that. He's been someone who has been pushing against what Republicanism was in, say, 2006, but I don't think is 100% comfortable with what it is becoming in 2016. He's also just a very smart observer on Republican and broad, more broadly American politics in general. So I was excited that he was willing to sit down and talk. And I am excited to be able to bring it to you. As always, if you are enjoying this podcast, please share it with your friends. Uh, put it on Twitter, on Facebook. You can use messaging platforms to send a link to it. Messaging platforms, I am told, by people who are knowledgeable are the future. And please rate us on iTunes. That is an important thing for us, and we love getting your feedback. And for more feedback, please email me at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com with ideas for guests, feedback on the show, whatever you'd like. So without further ado, here is Michael Needham. So I am excited to hear because I have wanted now for weeks or maybe months to ask you this one question. Uh -oh. What the hell is going on in your party? <laughs> well, look, I think you have a combination of a lot of people who feel gargantuanly unheard by our political process, who feel that there are economic factors that are making life difficult for them, that they have uh, wage insecurity, they have price insecurity in their lives combined with a feeling that Washington, D.C. is corrupt and looks after itself. And there's kind of a game going on between politicians who need money and businesses and labor unions and others who have money and, and want influence that make people feel very disenfranchised. And when you combine that with a kind of utter lack of statesmanship that's come out of the Republican Party for the last 10 years, with nobody trying to say, I understand that you feel unheard. You're, in fact, right to feel unheard because largely you are unheard in Washington, D.C., it creates a void 
that I think because the Republican Party hasn't been able to fill with intellectual leadership, with statesmanship, Donald Trump has come in and and is kind of coalesced 35 to 40 percent of, of the votes and combination of the field being split and the way the primary schedule was set up, here we are. Let me push you on this question of unheard. So you run the Heritage Action mm-hmm. uh, Network. Does this description sound fair to you? It's in some ways a institution that has taken the energy of the Tea Party and tried to turn it into organizational force in Washington, D.C.? Well, I think the Tea Party is part of what we're trying to channel. So I think in some ways you have to look at the whole history of heritage to understand where heritage action comes from. Heritage was started in 1973 explicitly to be an activist think tank. There was kind of this sense it was started by Ed Fulner and Paul Weirich, a House staffer, a Senate staffer, who felt that there was all this kind of intellectual work out there in the conservative movement from Friedrich Hayek, from Milton Friedman, that there were think tanks like AEI and Hoover that were putting out great tomes. But when one of them came out after a vote in the Senate on uh, the SST, which was essentially the American version of the Concord, Paul Weirich called up the president of AEI and said, look, this book you put out was great, but why did it come out after the vote? And the answer was, well, we're a nonprofit institution. We didn't want to be seen as trying to influence the vote. So Heritage was started to take those conservative ideas, translate them down into kind of an eight-page backgrounder, as we called them, something that was short enough, written at a fifth-grade reading level, so even a member of Congress could, could understand it, and actually try to influence, uh, educate congressmen before they voted. I'd say about 14 years ago, when I first started Heritage, Heritage was deeply in the midst of recognizing that our business model was not working, that you had Ed Fulner, who was the dean of conservative think tank heads at the time, who'd go over to the White House, sit at the right hand of President Bush for kind of round tables with think tank heads. And you'd have conversations about what should the conservative movement be able to do at this moment where we had control of the White House, of the Senate, of the House. And the conservative agenda wasn't advancing. You have Harriet Myers, who we were told, put her on the court because she'll vote the right way on Roe v. Wade, as if that was the extent of what conservatives cared about. And the people who were being listened to were the lobbyists. People who could come with the campaign checks, show up at Charlie Palmer and fill the campaign coffers. And so Heritage knew we had to do something to change, to, to influence Washington, to educate congressmen about what people were feeling very differently from just writing white papers and walking them over to Capitol Hill. And the answer was to go outside, to mobilize people, to give them the information so you could kind of envelop a member of Congress with information. I think that coincided with the start of the Tea Party for a lot of the same reasons. I think a lot of the kind of frustrations that Heritage had during the Bush years are the same frustrations that people across the country who rose up because of TARP and and, and the spending levels and Harriet Myers and and kind of so on and so forth. But it wasn't explicitly to kind of channel the Tea Party. I think it was similar urges. Right. I I meant that a bit. That's a fair point. That may have been more than you asked for. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, it's helpful. But the, the way in which I meant it is that your network has been a pointy edge of the spear in this sort of effort to take over the Republican Party in recent years and in what I think people shorthand as Tea Party, but as you say, has a lot of tributaries running into it. And in that way, I think this has been an interesting vantage point for you because a couple of years ago, the kinds of things people are saying about Donald Trump now, not in terms of his deviations from conservatism, but in terms of how can this be happening, why is the party so weak, were things that people were saying about the effort that you were a part of. How are all of these storied establishment politicians losing primaries, guys like Dick Luger and Bob Bennett? How come so many of these votes that John Boehner is running are failing on the floor of the House? And one question I have is the degree to which you see continuity 
between that effort to expose and open up some of these fissures in the Republican Party and weaken the control of its gatekeepers and what has happened in this presidential election where that has gone, I think, further than anybody imagined it could go. Yeah, well, what I think you've seen this election cycle is that the establishment lane of the party has has been blown up. There is not an establishment lane of the Republican Party anymore. So if you kind of define the establishment lane as every single Republican nominee since Ronald Reagan opposed Ronald Reagan in 1980. And it was kind of, you know, that was nice. Reagan, you know, he got in there, but um, that's not the direction that the party elders actually want to go. I think the voters have completely given up on the kind of types of politicians who are acceptable to the Mitch McConnells and the John Boehners and the Karl Roves of the world. And I think that comes from a lot of the anxiety that's out there, feeling like the system is rigged and then feeling like there's nobody providing leadership. What we've been trying to say for the last five years is in that environment, there are really only three ways that this goes. One way is that the Democrat Party, which I think is more naturally... Uh, Democratic of, Party, you mean? <laughs> <laughs> either, either way, I'm happy to say Democratic <laughs> Party. That the Democratic Party, which is the party, I think, more naturally to say, look, you feel insecurity and we have a solution. And, and the kind of obvious solution is, is the state and, and to um, provide security through some sort of federal uh, mechanism. That they could take advantage of this moment that we're in and we'll have a repeat of what we had in the 1930s or any other time that kind of a populist moment has led to an expansion of federal power. You could actually have a conservative reform agenda that gets adopted by a political party that wants to exercise statesmanship, listen to where people are, and find a way to channel their energy into a productive project that would help address some of those anxieties. Or you'll have somebody who comes along as a strongman and promises, and a strongman doesn't necessarily need to mean the worst definition of a strongman. And I think certainly when you listen to how Donald Trump talks about Tiananmen Square, it should give you pause, but I don't mean to necessitate that he be that type of strongman, but that some sort of strongman comes in and says, I will make you feel secure because I am smart and I am not corrupt and I will take care of your insecurities. And I think the failure of the Republican Party for the last five years to actually embrace a project of reform has led to the environment where Donald Trump has come in. In that environment, if he wants to make America great, we've got policies and we hope he adopts them. I think that, you know, he's put forth some good names for the Supreme Court. And so, you know, hopefully that's the type of direction he wants to go in. But it's fundamentally the lack of leadership that's come out of the Republican Party. And I'll tell you a story on that. So at the start of 2015, we met with John Boehner. Jim DeMint was in the meeting. I was there. As you may know, Jim DeMint was one of the leaders in 2007 of trying to bring down the, the McCain-Kyle amnesty bill. So we went through and we, we laid out this argument and said, look, there is a need out there for a positive agenda, for an agenda that says people are right to feel that Washington, D.C. is run by favoritism. People are right to feel like opportunity is at risk and they need solutions and kind of laid it out. And you could not have found somebody on the other end of the conversation less interested in talking about policy. And the only contribution to the conversation at the end was, hey, we think you guys should really take another look at amnesty, which was not going to be a kind of starting point. Uh, for where we're coming out. There was not an interest in this party in saying we're going to look in a different direction than the Chamber of Commerce agenda. We're not going to look into any changes to how the establishment has run the Republican Party for the last 10, 15 years. They've been running it into a wall of debt. They've been running it into a wall of political correctness. They've been running it into a wall where many, many people feel unheard by their party and they feel like nobody's fighting for them. And through that anxiety, you end up with somebody like Donald Trump. There can be a feeling I get sometimes when I hear this argument, because I think it's sort of become the dominant argument about the Republican Party, certainly in conservative reformer circles. 
And it can sometimes sound to me a little bit like the real communism has never been tried argument that the folks sort of much further on the left make. And the reason I say that is this. If you if you took your time machine from 2007 when you had that meeting with John Boehner to 2015. This was 2015. I mean, this was... This was oh, that was in, in 2015? Th- this is after meeting? Republicans have won the House and people are disappointed with what they're seeing. This is after Republicans have won the Senate. And this is now Got at the it. start so of 2015. Meeting was. How can we try to kind of unite the, the tribes? But so that goes to the, in, in some ways, to the same point. So during this period of time, you have the rise of Paul Ryan, right? And and the conservative House movement, and, and frankly, every Republican serving in that the House and the Senate, uniting around what, at least when it was initially proposed, conservatives greeted as a tremendous step forward for a conservative reform agenda. It was more specific. It was more sweeping. It was more unafraid. It was, in 2010, seemed as almost impossible that something like what Ryan would propose would become the dominant organizing policy force within the Republican Party. You're also sitting at a point after that where there's been this pretty significant Tea Party uprising, where a lot of key members of the establishment have lost their jobs. A lot of the surviving members of, I think, what we would think of as the Republican establishment have certainly in both speech and occasionally in action pledged fealty to a much more confrontational approach to politics, to a Tea Party-inflected agenda. You have in 2015 Marco Rubio, who is a you know sort of favorite son of the Tea Party, is considered one of the leading presidential contenders. Ted Cruz is clearly going to run. At what point is it being heard, and at what point is it a unwillingness to have a party that absorbs a number of different positions? Because I think watching from the outside, the change in the Republican Party has been dramatic and market, and that has not appeared to quell any of this, but instead create a desire and a demand for much more. Well, so I guess the premium support example from Ryan is an example of uniting the party around an idea and and saying this was an idea when Paul Ryan first introduced it. He had, I think, 14 co-sponsors. He built up support. He made the argument. He won the argument. And ultimately, you know, I think that, that premium support is an idea that we'll ultimately see in American, in American politics at some point, in, in policy at some point. What you haven't seen since 2010 is any other example of the Republican Congress saying, look, we're going to recognize a, an anxiety that people in America have, and we're going to put forth a solution as to how we can make it. And we're going to try to win a debate. The only way to win a debate is to have a debate. The only way to have one is to start one. Uh, so you take something like higher education, people wondering, how can I afford to send my kid to college? And Mike Lee, Ron DeSantis in the House have a bill called the Higher Education Reform and Opportunity Act, which would take the accreditation cartel, and instead of saying the only way you can be accredited as a university to get federal loan dollars is through a Department of Education accreditation cartel, and keep that accreditation institution in place, but also allow each of the 50 states to accredit if they want to, to increase the supply of education. If somebody in South Carolina wants to go to Boeing, work an apprenticeship, and while they're working that apprenticeship, maybe take some classes on engineering, maybe take some online classes on management, and get from a blue-collar to a management track, why shouldn't you be able to have that be an accredited education track if South Carolina wants to do it? I think those are the types of ideas, times 100 for all of the different pressures that people across America are facing, that a Republican House majority that wanted to start an argument about a different way of doing things from the progressive model that we've had for the last 100 years would put forward. Nobody's under any illusion that all of this would get through the Senate, that all of it would be signed into law by the president, but it's the type of thing that creates a, not just a perception, but that shows that this is a party that's actually intellectually interested in thinking through new ideas, 
putting forth solutions that can make life better for people, and then having debates and, and elections about those ideas. In fact, when you look at what the last five years was about, it's about reauthorizing a, a farm and food bill, which you could go to the Urban Institute, you could go to Heritage, you can kind of go anybody from the right to the left and say, look, American ag policy is a disaster and we should have change. And just reauthorizing the same broken programs doesn't do anything for America. It's about reauthorizing bloated transportation bills. It's about the biggest fight of the entire last Congress was whether or not to reauthorize the Export-Import Bank, which J.P. Morgan correctly calls free money for Wall Street. And so this was not actually a party that decided to use the scarce resource in Washington, D.C., floor time in the Senate, to do something that shows that they actually care about the anxieties of Americans around the country who are hurting. And instead, they decided to use that time to move the priorities of the Chamber of Commerce. It bred cynicism, and it's created a void that I think Donald Trump is, is completely taking advantage of. But so within that, there seems to be an implicit argument that uh, a model of the conservative voter, that they have been paying very close attention and have been looking for and waiting for a policy agenda that, that speaks to their fundamental values in, in a different way than anything they've seen in recent years. I could understand that argument leading to someone like Marco Rubio. Uh, you brought up accreditation, and, and that's something Rubio likes to talk about a lot on the trail. He does have a plan around accreditation. I haven't looked so closely at those two plans to know exactly how they stack up, but that, I think, is a kind of candidate that might lead towards. Then you get Trump, who ran one of the kinds of schools that make people nervous about policies that would bring down accreditation standards. You get a guy who says the government is going to pay for everyone to have health insurance. Um, that's not a very Republican thing I mean to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. You get a guy who is not what his policy ends up saying, but promises he's going to tax the rich. He's going to rip up trade deals. I'm listening to you here, and, and this is a way of thinking about politics that is appealing to me, because I like to think about politics from the lens of policy first. It is hard for me to draw the line from that to Trump. It, it, it has seemed to me that what Trump has proven or suggested is that the degree to which at least a 35 to 40 percent portion of the Republican Party is waiting for a more aggressive, reformist, conservative policy is maybe not the wavelength on which they're actually operating. Yeah. So, I mean, I hope that's not true. I, I, I think that a 10-year void in leadership in the Republican Party, in putting forth solutions, in fighting for people, in people who say, you know what, the Supreme Court just made a ruling on marriage. We understand that, that marriage uh, has been redefined. That's the law of the land. Can we now protect religious liberty rights? And you have a House of Representatives that isn't even willing to move legislation to say, yes, let's make sure that the government doesn't discriminate against people who have different beliefs about marriage than what the Supreme Court just ruled as the law of the land in terms of federal recognition. That a fact that, that the party for 10 years has not fought for the types of policies that people care about, has not put forth and tried to advance largely the policies that people care about, has created an environment where people are throwing in the towel, where people are saying, you know what, I need radical outside-the-box solutions. And when a guy comes on the stage and his initial message was largely, politicians are corrupt and stupid, I'm not corrupt and I'm not stupid and vote for me, and I will burn the whole thing down, it drew a lot of, uh, of appeal. And that kind of an environment was created where people were looking for something that they may not have been looking for 10 years ago. They wouldn't have been looking for six years ago. I don't think Donald Trump would have been the nominee in 2012. Certainly, there's all sorts of factors going into this. Nobody knows how to play the media better than he does. I can't imagine keeping a reality TV show fresh for 13 seasons. I mean, he has incredible talents. 
in terms of owning a media cycle. But the extent to which the environment has been made toxic by a party that has not largely fought uh, for people who feel rightly anxiety, who has not put forth solutions that speak to people where they are, I think has created an environment that has allowed this celebrity to come in and say things and, and channel angers and energies in a way that's given him a lot of momentum. On Trump, though, there's an argument I've heard, um, Matt Iglesias, my colleagues, made it, and, and I found it pretty convincing, that what Trump has shown is that the core of conservatism, the part of conservatism on which conservative voters are actually going to be unyielding, is not what conservative institutions in Washington think. So if you think of conservatism as you know potentially being based around economic conservatism or a kind of nationalism, the Washington conservative establishment is extremely inflexible on economic conservatism. There is a no tax pledge, unyielding opposition to things like Obamacare. There are places where I think I'm sure people don't go as far as you want. But if you look at the Republican candidates, they, they really all are directionally in the same boat. Then there is nationalism. And that's where certainly Washington conservatism has been much more willing to make compromises on immigration, I think, is is the biggest example. But, you know, there was, and social conservatism more broadly, there was no fight after the Supreme Court decided gay marriage was now a constitutional right. And similarly, there has been a very public effort, certainly in the Obama era, among players and leaders like Ryan and, and others, to make a show of how they were going to diversify the party. And that one way of interpreting Trumpism is that he has been unyielding on questions of nationalism. He's gone much further there than, than anybody had anticipated, things like a Muslim travel ban, his approach to immigration, his approach just broadly to what kind of country are we and who should be part of the us. But he's been extremely flexible on economic conservatism. You know, one version of the interpretation is Trump is just a weird celebrity media super genius. And another is that he has exposed that the core of the Republican Party or the core of at least a large voting bloc in the Republican Party is just different than what certainly Washington Republicans thought it was. And that they have been getting screwed over by a party that is flexible on the things where they wanted to be inflexible and then inflexible on things like raising taxes on the wealthy, government-provided health care, where they actually wanted to be flexible. Well, look, I think Washington institutions are largely detached from the Republican Party base. So I'm a fusionist. I believe that you can't have limited government, economic conservatism, if you don't have strong families, if you don't have strong institutions of civil society who will fill the gap of compassion, where none of us want to have a debate between government providing security and some Ayn Randian individualist world where everyone is just secure because free market said so. It's that there's this middle ground of civil society, which social conservatism is all about, which is where true compassion, true care comes from for societies weak and, and elderly and poor that we need to fight for. And there's no doubt that the Washington establishment and that Washington institutions are, for lack of a better term, squishy on fighting for social conservatism because the Republican donor class doesn't want to do it. It is a waste of, you know, economies run on the scarce resource. And the scarce resource in Washington, D.C. is floor time. And any moment that you're spending, spending two weeks fighting on the First Amendment Defense Act for religious liberty for Americans around the country is two weeks that you're not fighting for something that the Chamber of Commerce cares for, to make sure that some company uh, that needs to preserve its tax loophole or needs to preserve its regulatory carve-out or needs to preserve its loan guarantee program isn't getting uh, in that floor. And you couple with that with, I think, a lot of individual donors 
who would just prefer the social issues go away. And look, I grew up in New York City. I went to college at Williams College. Talking about social issues is not the most comfortable thing to do at Thanksgiving. And so there are plenty of Republican donors who say, look, why can't we just forget about the social issues, put them aside? Why can't we just grant amnesty and get that issue off the table so we could focus on the real things like reauthorizing the Export-Import Bank and you know get back to the brass tacks of governing? People get that. And, and to your earlier point, they may not understand it at the level of understanding the intricacies of the Export-Import Bank, though I was thrilled to see the lively debate between Bernie and Hillary on the merits of, <laughs> of the bank. It's, it's my white whale. But they do get it in their gut of, are these people fighting for me? Are their priorities aligned with me? And if they think that the Republican Party is not aligned with them on fighting for, for social conservatism, they're right. These guys do not want to spend time fighting for social conservatism. And for a lot of conservative voters out there, that leads to a disconnect. And I think especially after the 2012 election, a lot of evangelicals may have said, you know what, this party is just never going to fight for me. They're never going to win for me. And so when Donald Trump comes up, I don't think anyone's under any illusions that he's an evangelical social conservative, but he, he's saying he's going to fight for them. I think at this point, they'll say, you know what, I'll take that from a fighter as opposed to a party that has told me time and time again they need my vote, they want my vote, that they believe with me. But on every single opportunity, when, when Planned Parenthood is out there with videos uh, and people bragging about selling baby body parts for Lamborghinis, and the party still won't uh, in any way try to take advantage of the moment and try to get any legislative fixes enacted, people say, you know what, at least Donald Trump will fight. Support for The Gray Area comes from Shopify. Imagine an action movie where the hero has to sell 1,000 Barbra Streisand t-shirts in 72 hours to save a major American city. Save the city from what, exactly? That's for audiences to decide. But how would they do it? They've used Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform flexible enough to help your business sell at every stage of growth. Whether you're the main character in a tentpole action movie or the real-life CEO of a multinational company. No matter what you're making, Shopify can help you sell it. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, Shopify offers the flexibility to support your operation. They also offer something called Shopify Magic, an AI-powered helper created to help you stress less and sell more. Try it for yourself. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash box. You can go to shopify.com slash box now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash box. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. It seems to me that in terms of that social conservative nationalism versus economic conservative and regulation split, that part of the problem is that on a authentic real level, that a lot of Washington Republicans are not actually deeply socially conservative, that the reason they are willing to move on things like immigration, the reason they don't want to fight on things like gay marriage is that they really think we should have immigration reform. They really think gay marriage is fine, or at least they don't want to be on the wrong side of it in, in the long run. 
and that they feel the economic side much more deeply. And I'm curious if you think that is sociologically correct. I'm curious if you think that is a accurate description of a, of a real personality difference between a lot of the people Republicans are trying to turn out to vote for them and the folks who are actually here representing them or working on their issues. Yeah, I mean, I want to be careful not to impugn anybody's motives. I think certainly there are some people who are less socially conservative than their voters are. I think there are plenty of people who are personally socially conservative. Their kind of conception of the art of the possible is different than their voters or, um, and I think most Washington politicians have too limited a view of the art of the possible. And I think there are enormous, going back to what Ross Douthat has called the donorist class, there are enormous pressure from Republican donors not to waste time, quote unquote, on divisive cultural issues, and that this is a distraction from the priorities of the chamber. It's a distraction from the priorities of some of the mega donors. And so I think there is, whether on, on the individual level, the politician wants to or not, um, there are all sorts of pressures from the donor class, from the consultant class, that that's just not where we fight. We fight on economic issues, not on cultural issues. Do you think that there is a sense in which what Republican voters have been told to believe is possible from a party that controls Congress but not the presidency is actually impossible? And that part of the, the broad underlying issue here is that there are expectations that have been created that actually cannot be met. And, and, and I, th I think about this because you talk a lot here about fighting. And I, I hear this from a lot of Republicans right now, that what Republican voters in the country are upset about is that their elected representatives in Washington have been too conciliatory, have been too soft on the Obama agenda, have not delivered. I mean, this is certainly the core of the Ted Cruz message. It's also the core of the Donald Trump message. I think from outside that coalition, from somebody who's observing politics, not working inside Republican circles in it, it is certainly, I think, the conventional wisdom that Republicans in Congress in this era have actually been pretty recalcitrant. I think that they've been a pretty aggressive blocking force on Obama. I think there's been less cooperation than you see during typical presidencies. I think that they, we've seen shutdowns. We've seen near death ceiling breaches. Another way of putting it is there's a very big gap in how aggressive the Republican strategy has looked to people outside it and how conciliatory it appears to feel to people inside it. And I'm curious why you think that gap exists. Like, who is who is wrong here? Well, I mean, I think a lot of Republicans look at Nancy Pelosi and say that she actually did something on her side, which none of our elected leadership would do on their side, which is that she gave up a historic office, the first female Speaker of the House, in order to get a policy victory through Obamacare. And she knew what she was doing. They were explicit about it, and they were willing to do it. And I think a lot of people look at our leadership, and they say these are people that would rather lead in hell than serve in heaven, and that they are not, in fact, willing to lose an election or lose their speakership. And Paul Ryan, actually speaking at Heritage a couple months ago, explicitly said he would be willing to lose his speakership to get some conservative victories across the finish line in the next two, four, six years. That's the type of leadership we need. I think they're right to perceive that. And so certainly there have been fights that voters standing up and demanding of their individual House members a fight on important policy issues have pushed the Republican Party in. Let's be under no illusions that John Boehner or Mitch McConnell wanted to fight on Obamacare or wanted to fight on Planned Parenthood or wanted to fight on any of the big fights of the last couple of years, even smaller ones, transportation bills, farm bills. The way you win in politics uh, is by starting a debate, is by moving the Overton window. In doing that, then eventually compromising and getting more than you want before. I mean, people you know, frequently will say, well, you take 10% of a loaf, 20% of a loaf. Sure. I'm not aware of a time in the last couple of years that Republicans have been offered 20% of a loaf because our leadership has largely not been fighting with the left. It has been fighting with its right flank 
So I think the diagnosis that they give to conservatives is that our party needs to show that we're mature enough to govern, that if you allow us to have control of the House and the Senate and ultimately the White House, the budget will pass on time and the individual appropriations bills will pass on time and we won't have shutdowns. And we That's not actually what people, I don't think, on the Republican side want to be assured of. They want to know that their party actually has a thesis of the case as to how they can make life better for, for people, uh, as to how we can take these anxieties that people feel and address them. And until the party starts putting forth a sense that we actually care about people and we're going to fight for something other than just passing a budget on time and making sure that the Chamber of Commerce gets its priorities through, I don't think you can get any energy or enthusiasm for the Washington agenda. But, but let me push you on this for a second because I think it's an, it's an interesting question of what sort of fights are worth waging. And I think this is where you and, and some of the, the folks who serve in Congress may differ. You're completely right that the Republican establishment did not want to be backed into the shutdown that happened over Obamacare in 2013. They saw that as a disastrous strategy, but they did, I think, to your point, ultimately go along with it. I mean, one question of how aggressive a coalition is isn't just how temperamentally aggressive its leaders are, but what are they willing to do in response to organizing from their most committed members? So they actually do go into that. And I think it's fair to say by any of the normal measures we would use for this, they lose that fight. The public very, very rapidly comes to blame them. But you bring up the Pelosi example, and I think it's interesting here because I, I do think this is where it gets very different. I think what happens is John Boehner, when he was serving, or Mitch McConnell, or I think Paul Ryan, if this happened now, because I'm not sure Ryan's political instincts are all that different from some of the folks that, that were there before him. They look at it and they say, I don't see a path to victory here. Nancy Pelosi, who did take this tremendous risk and has paid for it by losing her speakership, to some, at least to some degree, the, it may not be the only reason, but it was a contributing reason. But she looked at it and said, I can actually pass the law. I can be the House Speaker who created near universal health care in this country. And I think that when I talk to members of the Republican establishment, folks who I think are seen as a bit more squishy by the conservative base or conservative activists, to them, that is the difference, that Nancy Pelosi picked her spot at a time when she could win. But before that, when she saw points where she couldn't win, she didn't do that. So when Democrats took the House in 2006, there was a big fight over whether they should defund the Iraq war. They had won the election based on opposition to the Iraq war. They were now in, and they had an opportunity to use the power of the purse to end the war. And they did not do that. And Nancy Pelosi's view of why they did not do that, and, and here I'm speaking for I've not asked for this, but this is my understanding of the Democratic view, is that they thought that would be a political disaster. And if they were going to get things done, they needed to choose their fight so they could win more power. And then once they had enough power, actually get it done. That often seems to be a luxury that is not afforded to Republican leadership. Well, the other thing Nancy Pelosi did was called Six for 2006. And it was six positive pieces of legislation that became the precursors for Dodd-Frank, became the precursors for Obamacare, that actually showed a positive legislative agenda that people could sink their teeth into. And so I think the failure of the Republican leadership for the last six years, and we can talk about the defund effort uh, if you want, is one, an unwillingness to pick and win fights. And I think that is a fight that they could have won if they had been engaged in, and coupled with a failure to put forth a positive agenda that says the reason to vote Republican in 2012, the reason to vote Republican in 2014, the reason to vote Republican in 2016 is that if you have concerns as a unionized worker, we got the RAISE Act for you. If you have concerns about higher education, we have the HERO Act for you. If you have concerns about your religious liberty rights, we have the First Amendment Defense Act. That there's actually a legislative project out there that is worth fighting for. 
and that through having both something that is positive and, and a reform agenda that can make life better for people, coupled with a willingness to hear the American people, certainly Republican voters, who are looking at a president who keeps pushing further and further and further on the line of executive versus legislative separation of powers, and see every single time our party blinking and saying, all right, you want to make some illegal appointments to the NLRB that eventually the Supreme Court rules 9 nothing to the position that they were unconstitutional? Well, fine, roll over and don't fight them on that. You want to roll over on 40 different changes to Obamacare, all made without legislative sign-off? Fine, roll over on that. And they keep kind of rolling over, and people are looking for a fight. And at no point during 2013 did Republican leadership say, you guys are right. We need to do something to assert our prerogatives as a, a co-equal branch of government. But the fight isn't Obamacare. The fight is over here. The only thing they ever came up with, ultimately, in September of 2013, a few weeks before the shutdown, was we have to unite to save the BCA-level caps. Um, a, a, budget Control Act. The Budget Control Act caps. A victory that had happened in 2011, where at some point Republican voters, I don't think, want to spend the rest of eternity fighting to cut the amount of, of spending growth over the next 10 years from 67% to 64% growth. And so when Republicans are both not putting forth a positive vision, and then the areas that they're willing to push as an opposition party from a co-equal branch of government and a system set up to have checks between the, the two branches of government, and when they're not willing to give their voters anything to sink their teeth into in terms of where they're going to try to exercise their constitutional and ideological obligation to fight a progressive executive branch, then it creates this kind of void that we're now in. There have been a strain of hot take that has come out uh, in the last couple of months. And the hot take goes something like this, that, that Donald Trump is really the fault of the Democrats because Barack Obama and Nancy Pelosi and Harry Reid took advantage of their majorities in 2009 to do such aggressive, completely country-altering legislation that it created this massive backlash. And then after they lost Congress over that, they continued to not just implement Obamacare, but Barack Obama himself went forward with certainly what Republicans see as a executive overreach of historic proportions on domestic policy, and on and on and on. And, and the idea is that these provocations drove conservatives to such fury and to such anger that it created the conditions for someone like Trump to rise. So I get the internal logic of that argument, and, and but what has been striking to me about it is the way in which conservatives have been told to be afraid, the way in which they've been told that something really dangerous and different is going on. And I think Trump has been part of it, but I don't actually want to focus on him here. Trump comes out of the birther movement, I think, in Republican Party politics more recently. But Mitt Romney took his endorsement, and he took his endorsement in a season where Mitt Romney said, we are inches away from no longer being a free economy. You have John Boehner talking about how the fundamental bonds of trust with the voter are broken. You have the reaction to Obamacare, which recognizing Obamacare is never going to be a policy conservatives like, it was treated as something fundamentally different and new and dangerous in American politics, not the way I think Democrats treated something like the Bush tax cuts as something they didn't like. They wish they had been able to stop. Maybe they wish they could repeal, but, but something that they just didn't like. And it does seem to me that something that has happened here is that in an effort to keep Republican voters engaged, there has been such an alarmist message delivered about Obama and the Obama agenda. Everything from his potential nationality, where, where some very, very strange rumors were indulged by pretty significant parts of the party, over to his agenda that has been treated not as a liberal president doing liberal things that conservatives are naturally not going to like, but as a kind of quasi-radical dictator figure. 
and that that has been a big part of it, that putting aside these questions of policy and tone, that one reason Republican and conservative voters are interested in a strongman is they think something truly dangerous is happening and something precious is on the verge of being completely lost. And the reason they think that is that their most sober-minded establishment figures have been telling them that for, for some time now. Well, I mean, I think there's a lot there to unpack. It was a very long question. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I'd had a piece of paper. No, look, I think that when you pass a health care bill, where we now have years of litigation, ultimately that's going to end in the Supreme Court this year, as to whether or not Catholic nuns have to provide birth control and potentially abortive contraception in their health care plans, then I do think it's fine to say that this may be a radical overreach that is not just a kind of tweaking of health care policy, but is having consequences that a lot of people find deeply disturbing. Nuns are being forced to provide contraception and in their birth control. And that's something that I think a lot of people find deeply disturbing. I think you're letting the Democrat Party off a little bit easily. I'd have to go back and look at some of the rhetoric in 2004 on the Bush tax cuts, but it has certainly contributed to very real anxiety between classes in this country and, you know, the Bush tax cuts. I mean, there have been, there were not efforts in the way there have been with Obamacare to constantly repeal the entirety of the Bush tax cuts. I mean, I think you can look at the legislative record there. I think, you know, the Bush tax cuts are not as sweeping as Obamacare, and I'd actually even agree with that. But I mean, I, I do think that there was a decision to treat Obamacare as something fundamentally different than, you know, No Child Left Behind. Democrats also disliked No Child Left Behind, particularly after it passed. They were more on board with it when it passed. But it didn't become this kind of locus of fear. Yeah, look, I think Obamacare is a lot more far-reaching than, uh, than I think you would. I think that if you wanted to put a lot more people on insurance the way Obamacare has, we could have just had a massive state Medicaid expansion. That's not what was put forward. I think if you wanted to address people with pre-existing conditions, you could have done something on that. I think those are the types of legislation that probably would have, I would have been opposed to them, but they probably would have met with much less concern than people around the country have over Obamacare, which is having all sorts of impacts on the healthcare markets, is having all sorts of impacts in terms of the definition of the 40-hour work week, is having all sorts of impacts in terms of the kind of moral concerns of social conservatives, where when the left push it through, they didn't even have the willingness to embrace kind of concerns of such a massive project going through to allow something like the Stupak Amendment to be put in part of it. And so I think this was a pretty massive overhaul. I think President Obama would claim it was a historic overhaul of American public policy. And I think people rightly have concerns from it. I know that the kind of usual script is when Republicans lose, we roll over and then stop fighting on it. And we kind of move on to the next loss. And it's been a gargantuan challenge keeping the Republican Party in this fight from the day after Obamacare passed, where the Republican House conference was, was pretty much 50-50 as to whether or not they wanted to repeal it, to after the 2012 election, where John Boehner said it's the settled law of the land. But no, we don't apologize for wanting to repeal Obamacare. That's the goal. I think that it's a pretty incredible achievement that six years after it's passed, we're still talking about it as a live fire exercise. We were thrilled that the House sent a repeal bill to the president's desk, uh, and we'll get a different president in there who, can, who will sign it. But, but sort of the broader question, because you and I could do, I think, a, a series of podcasts on our opinions about Obamacare. But it has seemed to me that across a variety of dimensions, Obamacare is one of them, but there's also been a, a very live set of issues about who Obama is and what kind of 
person and president he right. is about exercise of power, that in order to keep Republicans engaged in fights that within the context of another strategy, they would have checked out of at a certain point, that a alarmism has crept into the party, a, a sense of emergency, a feeling that something fundamental in America is being lost. And that that sense of panic, that sense of American politics has gone into a dangerous place, it doesn't usually go. And normal politicians who act within the normal context of the American political system are potentially not capable of, of wrenching it back. That, I think, has been a potentially contributing factor here. And it's a contributing factor that it seems to me, on the one hand, strategically has been smart for Republicans to push. On the other hand, has unleashed forces and fears they actually can't control because they didn't have the power to simply stop Obama. I mean, when they lost the 2012 election, they didn't have the power to take him out of office. And so I'm curious to the degree to which you think that within the adoption of this more aggressive view of what Obama represents and what is needed to stop him, there are the roots of this kind of party crack up because it created this feeling where, well, after saying all that, you couldn't go to the base and say, well, we tried to pass a thing in the House and the Senate, then Obama vetoed it. So that's kind of it. Yeah, so I, I mean, I think you're on to something there. So, so take the birther thing, for example. When you get asked the question, was Barack Obama born in the United States? There are a couple of, I think, wrong answers you could give. One is he's not born in the United States, and I'm not an expert, but he's put forth plenty of evidence. And I think at this point, the kind of time to litigate that question is well past done, and it seems like he was born in the United States. I'm sure he was. The second, and Cass Sunstein has an article talking about boomeranging contradictions. And I think if you just say to somebody, no, you're wrong, he wasn't born in the United States, and the only possible reason you could think that is that you're a racist or you're a xenophobe or you're just some sort of nativist who's ticked off that the country you love is going away, you're not going to win that person over. I think instead, to say, look, there is something, why are you asking that question? What are you trying to articulate that you feel that is maybe a valid thing to feel, but you're just articulating it totally the wrong way and, and, and grasping on to the wrong thing. I think that there is something to be said. When people get bitter, they cling to To their guns and their and... religion. Yeah, like, <laughs> um, I think people do have an anxiety over a country where you now have high school football coaches who are not allowed to silently lead an optional prayer before a game for their football team in rural Alabama. That is something that I think feels different. I think it does feel different to have an American president who says he believes in American exceptionalism, but in the same way that British people feel in British exceptionalism or Greek exceptionalism. I think that there, there are ways that people feel that some of what made uh, what Margaret Thatcher called America a great idea as well as a great nation is changing. That doesn't mean all the change is bad. That doesn't mean all the change is good. But I think there are very rapid changes that are going on today, some good and some I think are bad, that are causing people to feel that we are losing something in this country. And they're looking for statesmanship. And what statesmanship is, is being able to tell somebody, I understand what you're feeling from. And the right way to channel that isn't into a birther argument, but is in fact in favor of a positive agenda that we're over here trying to advance. And I think the lack of statesmanship on the right has allowed some of these pockets of energy to linger unfulfilled. And instead of pulling them together into a positive political project, has created a void that we now see Donald Trump going in and you, filling for. I, I'm so interested to hear you, hear you put it that way because I think of myself as a soulless, bloodless technocrat. And, and even I feel that to go to somebody who is anxious about the fact and in ways that are not literally about the statistic here but about what they see around them that say infants under three are now majority non-white. 
and you know, and is anxious about the fact that the faces they see on their television are, are very different looking than the faces they saw a generation ago, or anxious about the fact that when you turn on the Oscars, Chris Rock now lectures the nation about institutional racism. And to tell them, don't take those anxieties and put them into birtherism, which you think is a real thing. Take them and bring them over here to my positive, productive agenda where we're going to accredit colleges differently and, and, and so on and so forth. Those seem to me to be speaking to very different emotional needs that people have. And I, I think you are right to say that just telling people they're wrong does not answer their question. But people do have leaders and folks that they trust. And you talk about statesmanship. And I think a lot of the statesmen people have looked to in recent years, and they take many different forms. They're on talk radio. They're on CNN or Fox or MSNBC. They're in politics. They're in the culture. But a lot of the people who folks take their cues from have, particularly on the right, been saying, yes, be that afraid. It is not okay. There is something very wrong here. And I, I guess a question that I have is whether those fears once unleashed, how you how you put them back. Because as much as I'm a believer in the all-healing power of talking about American public policy, and I've staked my career on this, I don't think that you can move it in that direction. And I'll frankly even say in the Democratic Party right now, where I think that I sometimes understand the currents a little bit better, there is an anger that has been a real driving force of Bernie Sanders' campaign. And I think one real problem for Hillary Clinton is that when she says, I hear you, I know you're angry, here are my 19 bullet points of responding to your anger, that is not figuring out the root of the debate or the root of what makes Sanders appealing really at all. Or here are my dozens of $200,000 Goldman Sachs speeches that I've given. No, I mean, I, right. I, 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 know. Mean, I think that's a huge... I think that's a huge problem for her. Um, I, I know far less about the Democrat Party than, than you do about my party, so I'm, I'm even shakier waters talking about this. But I think the challenge for the Democrat part, Democratic Party is that there are not people right now who can, I think, credibly channel the energy that's out there. I mean, Bernie Sanders is a perfectly nice guy. He goes to the same dry cleaner as I do on Capitol Hill. Wait, you're telling me <laughs> Bernie Sanders actually does get his suits dry cleaned? <laughs> yeah, I've only seen him there once, but, <laughs> but, but he's not a particularly credible long-term leader of a revived progressive or, or you know, whatever it is, Democrat socialism uh, wing of the party. Uh, you kind of compare the number of energetic Republican Party officials in their 40s, who I think are broadly eager to be part of the type of project that I'm describing, are pushed aside by the current party leadership and people like, you know, McConnell and, and guys who've been there forever. But you've got, you know, Nikki Haley and Paul Ryan and Ted Cruz and Ben Sass and Marco Rubio. On the left, you have, you know, you have the Castro uh, twins, you have Cory Booker, Deval Patrick, I guess. The list starts getting pretty short pretty quickly from, from my vantage point. So I think the challenge is who are the elected leaders either on the left, but then also on the right? who are going to step up and say, we're going to understand the energy, we're going to channel in the state in, in, in the right way. Again, the term I've been using throughout this discussion, we're going to exercise statesmanship. And that's not what's been happening on the right. You've had some entities like the Wall Street Journal, which are essentially the stenographers for Mitch McConnell's leadership, who are not trying to participate in the project of channeling energy that's out there and is just an exogenous variable that you can sit up and, and curse it till the, you know, um, as late as you want, it's not going away. And instead of figuring out how to channel that th towards a positive project, they just kind of throw cheap shots at those who are going up against their leadership or trying to disrupt a status quo that is in fact broken and is in fact uh, disenfranchising a lot of people.
In many ways, it's interesting because Bernie Sanders seems a lot like the politician you're describing that the right needs more of. And, and, and I mean that in this way. And Just I think a little bit less disheveled and a little <laughs> bit less 71. Well, but what's fascinating about him is that he's somebody who has been in Congress for a long time now, uh, since I think the, the late 80s, if I'm not wrong, although I could be maybe 91. And he has been, you know, not the lead sponsor of major pieces of legislation, but an effective amendment-based legislator. He's somebody who's produced a tremendous amount of legislation in terms of having, you know, pretty detailed ideas around things like carbon taxes and, you know, how to do free college and what should you do with healthcare. And he somehow managed to be a player of a sort in Washington while never becoming part of Washington. As it is fascinating to see the Democratic Party view its choice here as an experienced establishment candidate and then this wild-eyed outsider, because Bernie Sanders has had much more time in elected office than Hillary Clinton has. And, you know, if you're going to look for someone who actually understands how the House and Senate work, there's nobody running in either party right now who has more just experience in legislative institutions than he does. And I think that there's something important there, because you just brought up a bunch of young players in the Republican Party and then a number of young players in the Democratic Party and said, these are the kinds of politicians we need more of. This was supposed to be the year when the Republican Party had the most impressive bench it has had in any election in, in, in recent memory. And it turned out that those kinds of politicians were not what people wanted. And I think that if you were looking at that model of the young, energetic, somewhat wonky, pretty pure player, you, do, you also might have looked at Martin O'Malley and said he's going to have a real run in the Democratic Party, that that is maybe the kind of politician that people want right now. But instead, it was Sanders. And with both Sanders and Trump, it seems to me that there is an, an authenticity that has become a currency in American politics that's really genuinely important. And the way I've come to think of it is that you can think of these politicians as having two axes, the liberal to conservative axis, which I think is the one where we have typically judged politicians, and then the sort of establishment to anti-establishment axis. And there, there are different ways that people show that they are anti-establishment, but it has seemed in certainly in the Republican Party with Trump that the anti-establishment axis is more important than the conservative axis. And certainly the Democratic Party, I think that a lot of Sanders' appeal has come not just from the fact that he's quite liberal, but from the fact that he seems to understand on a gut level there is something wrong in the political system. And he seems in a, in a way that people genuinely trust to be unwilling to accept it. And I'm not sure many of the young politicians in either party that, that you've talked about are that way. And in part because I don't think politics actually attracts that many people like that to run for office. And then if they do run for office, it's hard for them to climb up. So I, I'm curious how much you think we are seeing a change in the kind of politician who's actually going to be successful going forward, how much we're seeing an aberrational election or a new normal. No, I mean, I think you're exactly right. I've described the exact same two-dimensional axis as you do, I technical insider or outsider as the, as the other axis. But Angela Cotavilla, a scholar at the Claremont Institute, calls it the ruling class versus the country class. I think you're right on the substance of the point. Also, it's very hard to get to be a national-level politician without having trained yourself by playing the game right. for too long. So some of the worst performers on our Heritage Action Scorecard, especially when you compare it to the kind of partisan breakdown of the district come from states like Alabama, Mississippi, just gargantuanly red states and gargantuanly red districts. This is a scorecard um, just for, to, this is for a, people who don't know that, that checks how people vote against Heritage's view of how they should vote. Exactly. We look at about 60 to 70 votes every two years and, and give people a score. And so the question has always struck me, why is it that you have these Republicans from a, you know, 
20 percentage point more Republican district than Democrat in Alabama or in Texas? And the answer is that the way you become a House member from that district is by first having been a loyal member of the party in the state legislature for 10 years, having paid your dues, done what the leadership does, to get yourself in that position. And so you don't become a national politician until you've already proven to the party that you can be controlled. I think that technology does allow people in new ways today to break through and win in ways that they never would have before. So Nikki Haley in South Carolina was an extremely unpopular amongst her colleagues, member of the state legislature. At the time she was there, 92% of the votes in the South Carolina state legislature were unrecorded votes. You could have no idea how your member of, of the legislature voted on it. And kind of there was a famous in South Carolina vote that broke things open where they voted a, a, a pay increase for the state legislature. Every single member of the legislature was on record opposing it, yet it passed. And nobody could figure out who was part of this. Nikki Haley runs. She's up against a sitting member of Congress, Gresham Barrett, the attorney general, and the lieutenant governor. Yet she, on the strength of this populist stand in favor of getting recorded votes in the state legislature, fundraises nationally, gets Mitt Romney and eventually Sarah Palin to come in and support her, and runs a completely authentic grassroots campaign to get herself into the governor's mansion, when by any kind of traditional party decides, are you playing by the rules of politics to get there, she never could have been. And so I think technology and the ability to fundraise, to get grassroots support, to organize door walks and, and, and precincts through technology and not through the traditional cumbersome party apparatus will give us more Nikki Haley's and Ted Cruz's and more populist outsider candidates than we've gotten in the past. Do you think, though, that the cost of that is going to be a even more sharply ideological turn in American politics? Because when you talk about using these technological platforms to raise money, you need to attain a certain scale. The hard part about raising small donor donations is that they do not give you a ton of money at one time, which is why they're called small donors. And the way to get enough scale of them is to become controversial, to become known, to be able to raise money from outside of your state. The way you get people like Mitt Romney and, and sort of outside players involved is that you become famous in a way such that they see some advantage to coming in and weighing in on your behalf. And I think that we often think of money in politics, and, and I often hear people talk about money in politics as not just a corrupting force, but a polarizing force. And it's been my observation that that flattened differences between different kinds of money in politics. And that if we have a very sharp turn towards raising money by getting excited liberals and conservatives from all across the country to give you a bunch of cash, what that ends up meaning is that you have to be the kind of candidate who appeals to the more partisan members of your base, as opposed to the kind of candidate who maybe is you know, better at actually getting things done in a legislature. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess when I hear getting excited liberals and conservatives more involved in politics, I think that's a good thing. And I think that we want voters to be engaged, and I don't shy away from that. And then I think the burden becomes on the elected officials, on party leadership, on those of us in think tanks and other places to give them a project that can both excite conservative or liberals and elicit that type of emotional connection that's part of a statesmanlike attempt to make life better for America. But statesman, I think, um, is a is a important word there, because you brought up Ted Cruz as the kind of politician this can get you. And I think he's actually a good object case here, where he raises a ton of money. He's actually been one of the best funded of the Republican candidates in this presidential cycle. And one way he's done that is by 
setting himself very much apart from the other members of his chamber. I don't think it is exactly a secret that Ted Cruz is not the most popular member of the U.S. Senate. Um, Lindsey Graham a couple weeks ago said that if you killed him in the Senate, if Ted Cruz was murdered on the Senate floor and the trial was held in the Senate, nobody would vote to convict. And I think that that incentive set, which he has understood very well and I think played to the hilt and has led to a pretty successful so far presidential campaign too, is not long-term a great incentive set for American politics. I mean, small donors only have so much money to donate anyway. If the way to get that money is to somehow set yourself very much apart from everyone in your party and, and to become holier than thou as a legislator and become sort of the last angry man standing up for, for what is right, maybe you don't believe it's a good thing to get things done. But if you do, I think that that is going to make it very, very hard to get people to come together around legislation that maybe does require difficult decisions to be made. Yeah, I just it's a theoretical that I think the current example doesn't support. So I think Ted would love to get things done. And I think that if the Republican Senate conference was currently a bunch of statesmen-like people engaged in a project to provide solutions to Americans and, and address their anxieties, and they all hated Ted, that that would be an indictment of him. It's not. It's a bunch of people who are perfectly comfortable in the United States Senate. You know, I think Thad Cochran, when he, when he ran last cycle, was only the seventh oldest member of the Republican House Congress. Thad Cochran is not somebody who's waking up every day intellectually engaging with the challenges of our time and struggling with the responsibilities of statesmanship. And that's just not the current nature of the Republican conference. And so I think the test for people like Ted Cruz and Mike Lee and Ben Sass and Tom Cotton and Marco Rubio is can they all, working together, actually engage in that type of legislative project that advances solutions? But I would have much bigger concerns about Ted Cruz if, in fact, Thad Cochran and John McCain and Mitch McConnell were running around talking about what a great guy he is and a great colleague because they ain't part of the solution. What does statesman mean to you? you? You've brought up that word a lot here, and I'd be curious to hear you define it. Yeah, I think that uh, that statesmanship is is the act of understanding where people are, meeting where they are, and, and turning those passions to a higher purpose and getting things done towards that higher purpose. But right now, I think we have a lot of people who will look at energy out there and wag their finger at it and say, you're wrong to believe what you're you're doing. We have people, I think, who I mean, I think this is part of what got Marco under, in, in, uh, caused him not to, to light fire is to have good ideas, but not be capable of connecting it to an energy. And in this case, it was a an angry towards Washington energy that would get done. But it's about connecting, I think, principles and project towards where people are and bringing them along the way in achieving that project. But if it's understanding where people are, I mean, you, you're at an organization that is often that scores people on whether they vote for legislation that is often unpopular legislation. It is unpopular, say, to be for cutting Social Security and against raising taxes on the rich. I think that's a perfectly reasonable policy position. But it sounds very much like your definition of statesman is about channeling voter interest. But how do you define when that is actually being done? Because I don't think Ted Cruz, say, is the kind of politician who necessarily, or at least usually, sticks his finger up in the wind and tries to figure out you know, where the bulk of people are. I think that he is engaged in a pretty aggressive effort at persuasion and base mobilization. But that's a very different approach to politics than somebody who is trying to understand the pulse of the center of the country and then make hard decisions to, or, or even easy decisions to, to stand right, for But I that. think the challenge is how do you bring people along where you're trying to go? And so a leader who just says, I'm going to blindly walk this way and I don't care if the people follow me 
and if they don't follow me, it must be because they're stupid. You know, that's not statesmanship. A leader who sticks his finger in the air and say, where do the people want to walk? And so I'm going to, you know, walk with them. I mean, in some ways, it goes back to the birther conversation, right? If you just say there's people over here, their number one project in politics today is to get people to admit that Barack Obama was not born in the United States. That's not statesmanship. Simply lecturing them that they're wrong and not trying to channel it towards any positive project isn't statesmanship either. I think it's what Cass Sunstein talked about in terms of boomerang and contradictions. Statesmanship is about saying, all right, we hear this energy over here, and I'm trying to take it towards a project that protects civil society in this country, provides economic opportunity for everyone, that has an American foreign policy that keeps us safe. And how can we channel the energy and the hopes and the dreams and the anxieties of the American people towards that project is about statesmanship. And I think that's what's completely lacking in our nation's politics today. Who is a statesman right now? I think Mike Lee is the best. I think that he doesn't have necessarily the larger-than-life public persona to run for president of the United States, um, which is probably a, an indictment of our system. But I think Mike Lee is somebody who um, was every bit as much at the forefront of some of the I mean, when we talked about Nancy Pelosi before, kind of combining that six in 2006, the positive vision for the future, with a, a willingness to fight to get things done, even if it means personal sacrifice, I think Mike Lee's the embodiment of that. To, to go back a second to the, the issue that we had talked about in terms of the bench, we sort of began this conversation in terms of the Republican Party's apparent weakness right now. And I want to end it around the Republican Party's apparent strength. Because one reason Democrats don't appear to have any bench is that they are a minority in the House, a minority in the Senate, a minority in the governorships, and a minority in state legislatures. And there's a weird disconnect right now in the view of the Republican Party nationally, where it feels like a dysfunctional, even broken institution, where its core members cannot seem to convince voters of, of anything. And the Republican Party's actual down-ballot power, which is vastly outsized compared to what the Democratic Party can command. And so I'm curious why you think that has happened. I, I'm curious why you think such a strong base hasn't created a, a stronger top, or is the real interpretation here that the Republican Party is actually in great shape and primaries, or this primary anyway, are just weird? Yeah, I mean, I think probably more so the latter. I think the Republican Party is in relatively strong sh shape. I think it's been the result of gargantuan energy in the grassroots that's been able to be harnessed towards some pretty remarkable electoral victories, Mike Lee beating Bob Bennett in Utah as one example. You know, the Republican Party, I think, largely in the last couple of years has been afraid of debate, which is why you have a primary process that is completely, is, is largely compact. You have a once-in-a-lifetime, I believe, media character running. Uh, One can only hope. <laughs> <laughs> running for president in an environment where he's tapping into some very legitimate emotions. And if he follows through on pledges to tap into uh, some of those emotions, it would be a, you know opportunity for conservatives to work with him. But yeah, when you look at a Republican Party with 31 governorships and 245 in the House, it, I think a historic majority for the last 70, 80 years, 54 seats in the Senate, the Republican Party is in very good shape. And I think it's because it's getting back in touch with some of those the feeling of disenfranchisement that many of its voters feel and looking to change that. And somebody who is more optimistic about the Democratic Party, their argument for their future is that, yeah, they've done a shitty job having people come out in midterms. And it's true that towards the end of a president's second term, there are a lot of down-ballot losses. But they've won the popular vote in five of six presidential elections. The underlying demographics of the voter base appear to be getting friendlier to them. Do you think... Democrats are overly confident and smug about their chances. How do you how do you from the outside see the Democratic Party right now? Well, I mean, I 
grew up and went to college and grad school, and I'm married to a Democrat, and I think they're generally overconfident and smug. But <laughs> no, look, I think that if, if, if for Democrats, there are plenty of reasons to be optimistic. I, I generally feel that demographics are, you know, if you go back to the 1928 election, I think it was something like 92% of Irish and German people voted for the Democrat Party. And we're not still talking about the disaster of Irish and German people voting for Democrats today. They're now part of white people voting for. And so I think these demographics over decades and decades and decades look differently. I think the way for Republicans to address demographic trends is to show Hispanics and blacks and young people and women that our solutions can actually make life better for them. If, if we show them that and we're wrong, we're going to lose elections, but at least we're losing on our terms. If we don't show them that, then it's, it's on us. I would be more optimistic as a Democrat if I continue to have a Republican opponent that's afraid to show its true colors, that's afraid to show what it believes and how we think we can make life better uh, for Hispanics and women, a party that continues to pander and think that the only thing Hispanics care about is amnesty than I would be if there was a Republican Party that truly made a play for people on their merits and saying, we have an obligation to treat you like an individual who has concerns, things that keep you up at night, dreams for yourself and your kids, and we're going to show you how our project can make life better is for that, you. Is that an argument Republicans are making right now? I mean, there was, in the after the 2012 election, there was the Republican autopsy where the Republican National Committee commissioned a couple of sort of top Republican strategists to say what's gone wrong in the party. And the big thing they said was before they can have the kind of argument you're talking about having, right, that our tax policies are better for you, our social policies are better for you, the Republican Party needs to make those voters feel welcomed. And I think watching this election go forward, I don't think that if I were a young second-generation Mexican immigrant, I would feel very welcomed by the Republican Party right now. Yeah, I mean, I think, and, you know, uh, I'll, I'll be a broken record on, on the issue of statesmanship, but I think that if you went back and looked at that autopsy, it would be pretty much at a 180-degree, um, you, you, you'd struggle to write something that got the mood of the party wrong, more wrong than that project did. And it basically said, we need to do amnesty, we need to take a time out on the social issues, and we have a message-based approach to public policy, as opposed to going out, treating people like individuals, showing them that if you care about health care, here's how consumer-driven health care can make life better for you. If you're anxious about sending your kid to college, here's how accreditation reform and student loan reform can make life better for you. Actually meeting people where they are, understanding what keeps them up at night, and trying to address their anxieties. And I think the RNC just completely got it wrong with that autopsy. And that's why there's been a lack of leadership in the party. That's why we have a void. And that's why it's being filled in a very compact primary season by Donald Trump. What are three books you'd recommend people read to understand the Republican Party right now? Goodness gracious. You know, I think Sean Trend's work in terms of understanding, some, Trendy's work in terms of uh, some of the demographics of the party and, and where the politics are is extremely good. He's at Real Clear Politics. He's at right? Real Clear yeah. Politics. Um, my colleague Ryan Anderson has written, I think, just the best work on social conservatism and the truth about marriage that I think, you know, as somebody who grew up in cultures and uh, uh, parts of the country that is not traditionally seeing the best arguments made on the side of social conservatism has just opened my eyes up to what the real arguments are in, in terms of some of these social issues. What's the name of that book? Truth Overruled is the one that he wrote, and then uh, uh, right after the Supreme Court case. And then, um, you, know, I know, you know, I think Arthur Brooks uh, is somebody who's, for conservatives to win, I think we have to capture both the conservative mind, the conservative heart, and the conservative guts or some conservative courage. And I think nobody's done a better job of articulating what the conservative heart means um, and how we can talk about our ideas in a winsome way than Arthur does. And so I think it's a phenomenal book. And if we can marry the kind of traditional conservative arguments 
in terms of the conservative mind with what he argues for in terms of the conservative heart. And then some of the courage and, uh, and willingness to take our ideas to market and fight for them that we're trying to bring at Heritage Action, I think that we have a, a winning combination. Michael Needham, thank you very much. Thanks, Ezra. Enjoyed it. Thanks to Mike Needham. You could hear at the end there, he recommended Arthur Brooks, author of The Conservative Heart. On my other podcast, The Weeds, I actually did a a long, really, really interesting, I think, interview with Arthur back when I was piloting out this show. So you should go check that out. Arthur talks a lot about that book, a lot about think tanks, conservatism in general. it's It's a really, really fascinating conversation, and I urge you to check it out and to check out his book, of course. So thank you to my producer, AC Valdez, to Vox.com and Panoply for putting on this show, and we will see you next time.